Good evening. <laughs> I was sitting back there, man, and I was just worshiping and with Chris, and I was loving it, and he gets to the very last song, and I look up and I go, I don't have my mic on. <laughs> like, I need a mic. Anyways, that's why I was late. Um, love you guys. Family night. Good to see you. We got a great chapter tonight. I mean, they're all great chapters, right? But the ones I get to teach are the best. So it's for me, not for you. It's, it's a great chapter. I'm excited. Let's pray. We'll jump into it. Father, thank you. That your word never returns void. Week in and week out as we look through it, familiar passages, unfamiliar passages, stories we've heard, it's always timely. It's always accurate. It always pierces me, Lord, and challenges me and shows me where I can be more like you. But it also shows me how much you love me. So thank you for that. Bless this time this evening in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It is really a continuation, at least the first part, of 2 Corinthians 11. If you were here last week, if you listened to it online, if not, Matt introduced 2 Corinthians 11 like this. Have you ever had to do something you didn't want to do? Because that's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul did all through 2 Corinthians 11. It's what he's going to continue to do as he comes into 2 Corinthians 12. Paul's doing something he doesn't want to do. He's talking about himself. Paul doesn't like to talk about himself. He likes to talk about God. He likes to talk about Jesus. He likes to brag on the other churches. But the thing that's happened here is that there's these outside teachers who've come into Corinth and they've called themselves the super apostles. And they basically have been boasting about their accomplishments and where they studied. And they've told the people in Corinth how great they are to the point where the people in Corinth are like, I don't even know if we should listen to Paul. In fact, the super apostles have been putting down Paul, being like, man, if Paul was awesome, he'd do this like us, if Paul was great. And so finally, in this last chapter, chapter 11 and first half of chapter 12, Paul has to do something he's been avoiding for almost two full books and two visits to the Corinthians. He's like, all right, you guys wanna know my resume as an apostle? Do you guys wanna know why you should listen to me? And Paul throws down. And at the end of chapter 11, we get that awesome list of all the things that Paul went through, right? Five times I've been whipped, 40 lashes minus one, three times beaten with rods. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. Three times I've been adrift in hardships, in troubles, but I will boast in those because God shows himself strong in my weaknesses. So he gave us that list of hardships. And now we come into verse chapter 12, verse one, and he's going to go from a list of hardships to this really cool, amazing spiritual experience that Paul had. And here's what he says, verse one, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. 
And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. What's going on here? Paul is recounting in the third person this incredible experience he had 14 years earlier. Now, it's a little hard to date this and figure out exactly what happened, but most people believe, and I agree, that this is what happened in Lystra when Paul was stoned. So if you go back to stoned with rocks, like they tried to kill him, not, you know, Southern Oregon stoned. It's in Acts 14. And he went into the city called Lystra. And what happened is the people there got so angry at him that they stoned him. And many people believe, and I would tend to agree, that Paul actually died. It's interesting. Paul recounts multiple visions throughout his epistles. This is the only time where he's like, dude, I don't know if my body was with me or if my body wasn't with me. Like, this was a weird thing. Most people think Paul actually died. Because here's the thing. Paul was lashed 40 minus one, five times, but that was a punishment. When you lashed someone, the reason you did 40 lashes minus one is because 40 lashes might kill them. You didn't want to kill them. You wanted to punish them. The same with being beaten with rods that he talks about. That was a punishment. Stoning was a style of execution. You didn't stone people to punish them. You stoned people to kill them. And it says that they drug Paul outside of the city and they thought he was dead. And then Paul has this incredible vision where he says, I was caught up to the third heaven. Now, Paul's not implying there that there are multiple levels of heaven. Like, you know, if you read your Bible, you're in level one, but if you read and pray, you're level two, but if you fast as well, you make it to level three. That's not what Paul's saying. This is actually the common way that the Hebrews understood the universe and the earth to operate, which is that there is a first heaven, that's our atmosphere, the clouds, the rain, everything you can see. There's a second heaven, that's the stars, the moon, the sun. And then there's a third heaven, that's the dimension that God dwells in. Paul's saying, I went to paradise. I went to see my father. I don't know if I took my body. I don't know if I don't took my body. God does, but it was incredible. And I heard things that I, I can't say. So you sit back and you go, all right, well, what did Paul hear? What did Paul learn? We don't know. We don't have a clue. Paul doesn't tell us. He says that I, I can't share those with you. They're too wonderful. I'm sure that they affected Paul for the rest of his life. But sometimes the things that we encounter with the Lord spiritually, they're just for us. They're just for us. I think this was just for Paul. I think this is an experience that kept Paul going when times got so hard, when he's out there for a day and a night adrift in the sea, I think he's thinking about this. Man, I was in paradise. I get to go back. I can't wait. But what I find so interesting about this is not that Paul was caught up into heaven. It's that he waited 14 years to tell, everyone, to tell anyone and when he finally does recount the story, he recounts it in the third person, almost like it didn't really happen to him. He's trying to distance himself from it. We all know what happened to him. It's like those things when people ask a question that, you know, but they're asking for a friend. Like, does, uh, do employers really check um, social media platforms? I'm asking for a friend, you know. How long does marijuana stay in your system? Asking for a friend, right? 
Everyone knows what Paul's doing here. So why does he do this? Because Paul doesn't like to talk about Paul. And I love that about him. I think we all in our culture could learn something from Paul there. What does he say in the first verse? I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I don't want to boast. I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about Jesus. But what's our culture do? It pushes us time and time and time again to boast. We have apps on our phone that are dedicated to boasting. Instagram, look at me. I'm not, there's great things that can come from it, but so many of the times, that's what it's used for. That's what our culture pushes it. And people who are really, really good at boasting, we have names for them. We call them influencers, right? That's someone who's really, really good at boasting and we pay them for it. Like if that's not a head scratcher, Paul doesn't like boasting. And I think we need to take that to heart today. Here's what Paul says about boasting. It's in 1 Corinthians 1.31. He says this, let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that's the ESV version, the version we're reading tonight. But if you read it in the King James, it's really interesting the insight you get there because it says this, let anyone who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's really the definition of boasting. It is ascribing glory. I'm going to ascribe glory to something. And the question for each of us this day is, when we have the time, when we have the opportunity, when we're given a platform like Paul is, do we ascribe glory to Jesus or do I describe glory to me? Because it's so easy to get sucked into the culture of boasting. So I have a few questions that I've been thinking through for myself, some of them very challenging to weed out the boasting because it's so common that we miss it. Do I take credit for the things that God has given me? The talents, the abilities, the people in my life. Do I take credit for those? Right? Like I got to teach Easter, one of the coolest things I've ever, ever gotten to do. What a blessing it was. And so I've been running into people and they're like, oh, you taught Easter. It was so great. And I'm like, dude, it was the Lord. Like it was so the Lord. You have no idea how little of that was me. It was so God, but it's so easy to be like, yeah, it was pretty good, wasn't it? The people were blessed. <laughs> it's so easy to take credit for the things God has given us. Paul is so reluctant to do that. And he could have boasted more than many of us. When I have conversations with someone, do I use more question marks or pronouns? Oh, I did this and me and the, there was an old comedian used to call that the me monster. You remember me? And then, and then I did this and then it was all about me and, and I, or to ask questions. How was your day? How was your week? How are you feeling? What are you going through? And then listen, instead of just waiting for my turn to talk. This one got me. Do I complain about serving? So here's how this one works out and becomes boasting. Let's say you're volunteering back in the kids' wing and someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, I heard that you're volunteering back in the kids' wing. And you're like, oh my goodness, it's insane. We had 65 three-year-olds 
Three of them took their shoes off and started a shoe war. I didn't even know three-year-olds could have stinky feet. One of them was just running around screaming. Why am I telling you that? Because I want you to know how much it cost me to serve. Glory, me. It's boasting. Do I find myself making promises I can't keep, that I know I won't keep? Because I want you to think I'm the kind of guy who's going to do that when I know it's not a chance. I'll pray for you, right? That one cuts a little close. How important is it to me to get credit for the things that I did for you or the sacrifice I made or the ministry I was involved in? Do I care about credit or do I care about the kingdom, right? The classic boasting, am I a story topper, a name dropper, a vacation poster? It's all boasting. Do I refer to myself based on my accomplishments or my callings? I think that's so interesting for Paul. Look at how Paul always refers to himself. Like if I was Paul, I would refer to myself as this, Paul, the apostle who died, went to heaven, saw God and came back to share the gospel with you. But that's not what Paul says, does he? He just says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduces all of his letters. Sometimes he just says, hey, it's Paul. Hey, it's Paul. I love what he says at the beginning of Romans and Titus and Philippians. He says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Do you want a good way in your life to combat the cultural pull towards boasting? Remind yourself every morning, James, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's our role. Don't boast because Paul says there is nothing to be gained by it. Absolutely nothing. But I think my favorite part about this passage is what Paul says about his body. It's like, I went to heaven. I don't even know. I don't, I don't know if I was in my body. I don't know if I was out of my body. God knows. I, I, I'm not even really sure. I may have left it behind. It may have come with me. And it, it reminded me of something I heard someone say in a sermon a few weeks ago that has just been rolling around in the back of my head ever since. It's something that I always knew, but you know when someone say, says it in like a succinct way, you just kind of go, whoa, that's really interesting. What they said is this. He says, you have to remember that you are not a body with a soul. You are a soul who has a body. And how much different would we act if we took that to heart? How much time do we spend on our bodies? How much time do we spend on our souls? Paul knew this. That's what he says. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, for if we know that the tent, he's talking about our bodies. If you know that your tent is your earthly home is destroyed, we will have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Every person you meet is a soul who has a body. And we need to see past the body and to the soul because that's what God cares about. It comes even to the way that we describe people. Like, how would you describe me? Someone was like, oh, James, I think I know that guy. I, like, what does he look like? I mean, you know, who is James? Oh, well, he's like, you know, he's 5'9", average to slim build, black hair, a little bit of gray on the side, always have some sort of a beard thing going on. Is that James? No, that's the thing that carries James around. 
Literally, that's how God views it. That's the thing that carries you around. When you look in the mirror, that's the thing that's carrying you around. Your eternal self is unfortunately right now stuck in there. And someday we'll be freed from that, right? We spend so much time not wanting to die. Paul's like, dude, you're stuck in that body. Someday you're gonna get freed of it, amen? And then you can live the way you were meant to live because the body breaks down, but the soul lives forever. I wonder what it would change in our heads if we always remember to think about people like that. It's not that the body doesn't matter because that can get really weird. That's actually 1 Corinthians 1. When you get into 1 Corinthians, the whole first chapters, it's because they were saying, hey, listen, there's a body and there's a soul and the body doesn't matter at all. So you can do whatever you want. Just sin, live life to the fullest, get drunk. It doesn't affect your soul because they're separate. That's not what Paul says. Because what does he say? He says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So glorify God in your body. What you do with your body matters and you can tell things about a person, right? Like if I see a guy walk in, he's got a giant beer gut, I'm like, you might struggle with self-control, right? So there's things that we can learn from the outwards appearance, but so much of it, we need to look back and be like, listen, God's concerned with that person's soul. No matter how they look, dress, race, color, it's the soul that matters. Because at some point we like Paul will go to paradise and we'll be like, I, I, just left, I, I left the body behind because it didn't really matter anymore because I'm in paradise now. Such a cool thing. And then Paul goes on and here's what he says in verse six. He said, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think me no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am am strong. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Anybody ever heard this term, heard this story before? Yeah. There's a lot of misconceptions about this story. It's, it's an interesting passage. Here's the first question. What is it? What is Paul's thorn in the flesh? The answer is we don't know. We don't know. The two main arguments put forward is it is spiritual or it is physical. The argument for spiritual is this, Paul's saying, hey, it's a messenger of Satan. 
that Paul was out there day after day preaching and pushing forward the gospel and doing great things. And the enemy took notice and grabbed a few of his guys and were like, you follow that dude around and make as much trouble as you can. Because doesn't it seem like trouble follows Paul? And everywhere he goes, people get stirred up against him and about him and he's beaten and he's shipwrecked. And it certainly seems like there's a spiritual element following Paul around making life difficult, doesn't it? And I'm sure there was. Because know this, anytime you push back against darkness, darkness will push back against you. Expect it. Get ready for it. We're going to go into Genesis after we finish 2 Corinthians, and I'm super excited to go through that book. But one of my favorite and most telling verses in Genesis is, and then the serpent. It is the verse that immediately follows the first marriage. Interesting, isn't it? God says, listen, I've designed this amazing thing. Man, wife, together, someday it's going to represent what I do in my kingdom. And Satan's like, I do not like that. I'm coming after that. And he does to this day. Satan's after your marriage. And sometimes that fight that you're having with your spouse is spiritual. Because when either of you stand back and you're like, what in the world are we fighting about? You can't remember or it's incredibly dumb. And there are times like that when there's strife and there's enmity in your house and one of you, man of God, woman of God, needs to stand up and be like, hold on, time out, this is spiritual. And spiritual battles need to be fought with spiritual weapons. It's time to pray because we are under attack. Satan is real. And he was after Paul and he's after us. And we need to be aware and fight those things with spiritual weapons. So that's the first argument. Paul's thorn in the flesh is spiritual. The second argument is that Paul's thorn in the flesh is physical. That Paul had some sort of a physical ailment, a physical disability that caused him consistent and chronic pain. And the answer I would say to that is, duh. He was whipped to within one lash of death five times. He was beaten with stones until they thought he was dead. He was beaten with How many incorrectly healed bones does Paul have? This dude is messed up. They also think he had a serious problem with his eyesight. And there's a large argument to be made that he might've had some form of chronic malaria. He's got serious physical problems. And so that's his thorn in the flesh. What is it? Is it spiritual? Is it physical? I think it's both. Read chapter verse 10. What does he says? He says this, I'm content with weaknesses, physical, insults, spiritual, hardships, physical, persecutions, spiritual, calamities, physical. It's both. Paul is under spiritual attack and he has physical issues. And so when Paul is facing these unbelievable difficulties, what is Paul's solution? I'm going to pray. I'm going to 
pray, it says this, three times I pleaded, desperately pleaded with the Lord that this should leave me. Consistent, persistent prayer. Is that our first reaction to difficulties? Or do we go for prescription over prayer, right? When I run into difficulties, do I go, Lord, I need to go right to you. Is that my first? Because the great men of the Bible, that's what they did first, right? You look at the great men of the Bible. Paul, I've got a problem, I'm gonna pray. David, I'm pursued in the wilderness, I'm gonna pray. Nehemiah, this guy is coming after me. Sanballat and Tobiah, I'm gonna pray. James, I got a serious issue, I'm gonna ask Suri. What's wrong with my toe, right? We need to be people of prayer. Not that we need to be only people of prayer, because the thing that I love so much about Nehemiah as we're going through this is Nehemiah is what? A person of prayer and a person of practicality. So we'll see Paul's a person of prayer. He prays, Lord, take this away from me. But then there's a lot of evidence to say that he grabbed this guy named Luke, who was a doctor, and was like, Luke, you need to travel around with me for a while because uh, I need some help. I need a doctor with me. 24-7, because I got some problems. There's prayer and there's practicality, but first we go to prayer. And then once we pray, we listen because this is God's reply. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul does not get a practical solution he gets a promise. So many times in your and my Christian walk, when we come to our Father in prayer, what we would like is a practical solution. And God does that. He heals, He reconciles, He does miracles. But oh, so often, and I would wager to say, every time you come to God with a problem, if you pray consistently, you will at least walk away with a promise. God will always have a promise for you. What did he say to Paul? No, no, Paul, I'm not taking it away, but I will be sufficient for you when you're weak. Lord, I've got this, I'm just, I'm having relationship issues and these things are falling apart. Lord, what am I supposed to do? And you pray and you seek in the word and God might say to you, Joshua 1, 9, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy ridden, and I will take away your burden, make it easier. I will give you rest. Lord, there's just some, there's some people who really, really wronged me and it hurts me and I can't let go of it. Lord, what am I supposed to do with that? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's not a solution. It's a, it's a promise. All things work together for good. One of my favorites is Romans 8, 37. Overwhelming victory is yours through Christ. That's a long-term promise. Revelation 20, this is the Trump promise too. Like it, not Donald, but like when it used to mean something, like the Trump card. 
Revelation 22, 20, surely I come quickly. There is no problem we can take to the Lord that that promise doesn't provide hope for. Surely I come quickly. And so when we struggle with these things as Paul does, we need to be people of prayer and then we need to sit back and we need to listen. And one of the best ways to listen for God's voice is to read because this is where the promises are. I will be sufficient. My grace will be sufficient for you. So that's God's reply. What's Paul's response? Okay, good with me. Thank you, Lord. I think we overlook how important that response is. Because I could have, if I was Paul, I could have been like, what? You're not gonna heal me? Do you know how hard I've been working for you? Do you know all these injuries I sustained were in service to you? And it could be very easy for Paul to stand there and think he can demand that God answers his prayer in the way he wants it to be answered. And that's not at all what Paul does. He says, okay, if you're not gonna take it away, then I will boast in my weakness and I'll look for the silver lining. Because what does Paul say in those first verses? It's all the way back in seven. Paul says this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of my revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh. He said, I went to heaven. I came back. I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. And then I have all these physical ailments and they're not healing. And the two of them, Lord, as I've looked back through my life, I realized those two have kind of balanced themselves out. The one has kept me going when it was hard and the other has kept me humble when I thought I was all of that. I didn't know you were doing that, Lord. What a cool thing. See, he accepts God's answer and then he looks for the silver lining. And I think that's hugely, hugely important. It's such a cool little passage, this thorn in the flesh. But there's some very practical lessons for us, for you and I in this section. When we read that verse, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What a great verse. But here's what I learned about that verse. First is, that verse is the death blow to the idea of faith healings. You ever go to a church, if you ever end up somewhere and you're praying for something in your life to be healed, relationship, physical, and someone tells you, if you just had enough faith, God would heal you, turn them to this passage and ask them if Paul lacked faith. Did Paul lack faith? No, God said no. He said, my grace is sufficient. I'm gonna give you a promise, not a solution. This is the death blow to that for me. Those arguments do not hold water at all. But the other thing about this is that this verse should be unbelievably encouraging to us. But it's one of those verses that just can't be believed or memorized. And many of us have this memorized. We know this verse. It needs to be meditated on because it's so counter to this individualistic culture that we live in that without the constant reminder that God is sufficient for us, we get sucked into this thing that we're supposed to be sufficient. When God says, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, the other way to say that is, without Christ, you are insufficient. 
Do you find that comforting, convicting, challenging, all of the above? I do. Without Christ, I am insufficient. Do you believe that? Because our culture doesn't, our world doesn't. And so often I see Christians saying that they believe it, but on the other hand, I see them saying things that make no sense. That they're, so I'll, I'll see someone post something, you know, and they're like, hey, we're going through this really difficult time, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll see someone that I know from church and they post back, hey, just hold on tight, you are enough. You're enough? How is you're enough and without Christ you're insufficient? How are those not mutually exclusive? How can we not come to someone who's going through like that and be like, listen, I get it. You need more Jesus in your life. He will be sufficient for you as you walk through this thing. I read through a ton of commentaries and listened to a bunch of messages on this. And I cannot tell you how many people said this. It's not that God will lighten your burdens. It's that he'll give you bigger shoulders. That completely misses the point of this statement. Because what that does is it turns church or Christianity or God into something that will make you better. And once you're better, then you'll be able to handle all these things. Nope. Nope. That's not what it says. It says, I will carry these when you can't carry these. Not I'm gonna give you bigger shoulders, stronger muscles. I will lift the load when you can't lift the load. Because if we think that we need God to give us bigger muscles, then when our muscles are small, we think we disappointed God. And we get a very slippery theological slope there. I am sufficient for you, says God. Because if we think God's job is to make us sufficient, then we turn God into our therapist. And that's not right. That's not his role. And I see this danger. I'm gonna get on a soapbox for a second. I wish I had one. I should have brought one. I see this dangerous trend in Christianity right now, not just to turn God into our therapists, but to turn our, turn our therapists into God. And there's this thing of therapy coming into, now listen, I'm gonna caveat this, okay? So if you're mad at me now, give me a few minutes, I might unmad you, or you might still be mad and I'll give you my email address later, it's fine. There's this thing coming into Christianity where we're just really putting this emphasis on personal therapy and therapists and time and talking through these things. And listen, there's a place for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And especially within marriages, I see that incredibly important because you grab two people together and you put them in counseling and you teach them how to talk to each other because you guys don't know how to talk to each other so often. That's hugely important. And there is a time to sit and talk with a godly counselor and work through things that happened in the past and hurts and issues and ways that you can deal with those. But listen, if you sit in a session week in and week out, month in and month out, and you talk more about you and what you can do than what God has done and can do in your life, you need to pray about that. You need to pray about that. Because here's what the Bible says. It's 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've been given all things in Christ for life and godliness. You are the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He will be sufficient when you are insufficient. His power will be perfect in your weakness. And sometimes we need to sit down with someone and talk to them and they need to remind us of that over and over and over again. And that is so healthy and so important. But so much of what I'm hearing coming into Christian circles these days and podcasts that I'm listening to is people just talking about their past and their coping mechanisms and their triggers. And what, you're, what people are doing is, is modern therapy is staring in a rear view mirror and hoping someday it'll turn into a windshield. We can't look back there. Yes, we need to look. We need, there's some things we need to deal with, but at a certain point and fairly quickly, we need to look forward to the things that God has called us to do. And if you're sitting down with someone week in and week out and they're calling you to those things and reminding you of that, amen, we need more of those kinds of counselors in this valley. But if all we're doing is talking about us week in and week out, pray about that. Pray about that. I'm concerned with how it's creeping into the church, okay? So, soapbox down, james at edgewaterchristianfellowship.org. That's totally fake. I don't have an Edgewater email address. <laughs> if you really are bothered by that, come talk to me afterwards. I, we, we can talk. So anyways, you can do Matt at Edgewater. He'll, 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 he'll forward them to me. I think that's the practical takeaway from us. Listen, he's sufficient. He's powerful when I'm weak. And it is so important for me to know that because it gets me over my fear of failure and my fear of inadequacies. I, yeah, I'm gonna fail. You're gonna be inadequate. And when you are and when I do, he will be strong because he's promised it. And that's what I stand on, not my own strength. It's so encouraging. And so then we move on. It says this, verse 11, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you a less favored than the rest of... Oh, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I'm sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul here is readdressing something he addressed in 2 Corinthians 11. The Corinthians were mad at Paul disappointed in Paul because he didn't take money from them. And it was this very cultural thing because in that time, if you, 
in Corinth, if you were a good orator, if you were a good speaker, then you would have a patron who would pay you. And if you weren't a good speaker, if you were like junior varsity speaker, then you would have to have a job and then you would also speak. And Paul, when he went to Corinth, got a job as a tent maker. And so all the other apostles come in and they're like, see, he's not that good because if he was that good, he'd have had money from you guys like we have. Instead, he has a job. And so Paul has to spend seven verses and address this stupid argument again. Did any of you guys get anything out of those verses? Any nugget that you can take to tomorrow? Any great piece of insight to encourage your soul? No, no, we had to waste seven verses on a ridiculous argument. What did the Corinthians lose by getting involved in ridiculous arguments? I'm just curious, this, this passage right here made me, reminded me of a, um, a concept from high school economics. Do you remember the concept of a lost cost? Um, I mean, sorry, an opportunity cost. All right, so the concept in economics was this. Everything that you do has a real cost and it also has an opportunity cost, okay? So let's say you decide some Saturday afternoon, you're gonna go see Fast and the Furious 27 at the movie theater. I don't know how many there are now. So your real cost is the $17 or whatever you paid to get into the movie. But your opportunity cost is what you could have been doing with those two hours. What did you miss out on? The exercise, the book you could have read, the time you could have spent with your kids. Like that's your opportunity cost. And as I read through this, I'm looking at the Corinthians and I'm like, how much opportunity to learn from the greatest theologian of all time did you miss out on because you were arguing about stupid things? Everything in our Christian life has an opportunity cost. And ever since then, I started thinking about this more and more and more. What are the opportunity costs? It's not something I typically weigh out. Like, listen, not pouring into your marriage, listening to your spouse, taking time together, building your friendship, dying to yourself, that's gonna have real costs, real explicit costs, strife in your home, arguments, discontentment, divorce. But what are the opportunity costs? The joy that that marriage could have brought you and those people around you, the security it could have provided for your kids, the people's lives you could have blessed. What's the opportunity cost of coming in here on a Sunday morning and sitting with my arms crossed and not entering into worship? What did I miss out on in a time when God could have met me, even though I walked through the doors and I was having a bad morning and what if I had let all that go away and I'd been like, nope, I came here today to worship my father and no matter how I feel, I'm gonna worship my father. How many opportunities to meet God have I missed out on when I walked through those doors on a Sunday morning because of my own attitude? Sitting in the pew, checking my Facebook status instead of listening to a message that could have pierced me. What is the opportunity costs of our decisions when it comes to our spiritual lives? It's just something that's really challenged me. I've really been thinking about it because it's not just mistakes. It's the decisions I make and what could have happened. What are the opportunities? What did the Corinthians, what did we miss out on? Thousands of years later, this passage could have been unbelievable. It could have told us exactly how to make our kids obey everything we say. 
but we missed it. Stupid Corinthians. <laughs> what do we miss? What do we miss when we argue with our brothers and our sisters? What opportunities for ministry do we miss when we don't partner with churches in our areas? What are the opportunity costs of stupid things that we argue about? Just interesting, just been challenging me. All right, well, how do you deal with that? How do we mitigate that? Because there are arguments, there are things, there are disagreements, there are issues. We do exactly what Paul does here in these last few verses. Look what it says. It says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling or jealousy or anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceited and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impunity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Here's what Paul says. I'm coming to you again and I wanna spend time with you and I wanna talk about the deep things of the word. And I know that these issues with the false apostles and what you think about me and my issues, I know it's gonna cause, it's gonna take up all of our time. So I'm just gonna nip it in the bud right now and I'm gonna address it. That's how we mitigate these issues. We do Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him between the two of you alone, humbly, kindly, with grace. I added all those to the original translation. I think you can read it into them. For if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. We address these things right away. We don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't hold them all in. If someone hurts you, sinned against you, wronged you, let's just take care of it right now so we can get back to the business of building the kingdom. So this happened to me the other day. Somebody called me up and called me out because I had done something that wasn't great. It wasn't like a giant, I'm not hiding a giant sin, okay? It was a more personal thing between us. And he basically said, listen, this is what you did. This is how it affected me. This is why I think it was wrong. And he started the conversation with this. Listen, I love you and we're gonna be good, but here's what happened. And I don't want it to affect our friendship, our relationship going forward. I was so, so thankful for that because it gave me an opportunity to be like, oh, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I apologize. Let's move forward. But he could have just been mad at me for, because I didn't know. I didn't see it that way until it was brought to my attention. And he could have just been mad at me for months or years or, hey, you know, hey, did you hear James' sermon the other day? Oh, James, that dude, watch your back. No, none of that. Because that's a waste of time when we got a kingdom to build. So he called me up. Hey, here's what happened. I love you. This is a great, this is a great, just, uh, blueprint. I love you and we're going to be okay, but this is what you did. This is how it affected me. And this is why I think it was wrong. 
Do you have anybody you need to call? If your phone rings tomorrow, maybe someone needed to call you. <laughs> Paul says, don't let these things fit. Don't let these things fester. Because before you know it, I got to spend two chapters boasting about my accomplishments when all I really wanted to do was talk to you about Jesus. Because he's coming back and we need to build his kingdom. Amen? Father, thank you for this passage, for this evening, for this time. I pray that we would be people who take every opportunity to turn glory away from ourselves and back to you. That we would be people of prayer. That we would be people who take your promises to heart, Lord. That you're not gonna make every path easy for us, but you are gonna walk them with us. Lord, you're not gonna give us stronger backs. You're gonna carry the burden with us. I pray that we would hold fast to those things from you, Lord. That we would not miss out on the opportunities that you have for us. That we would seize them. That we didn't let petty arguments get in the way of the work that you have for us to do. So bless us this evening in Jesus' name, amen.